Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Stone, and today I have a really exciting guest. I have Casey Paul Griffiths, or Dr. Casey Paul Griffiths, and he is the author of this wonderful book called 50 Relics of the Restoration. Casey, thanks so much for being on. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Daniel. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, you too. Uh, just for audience knows, I consider Casey a very good friend um, and also a very good scholar. So I am biased because we're friends, but if I didn't know him, I always thought he was a good scholar to begin with. And I'm just so excited to have him on. This is another great book that he's published. It's very readable. It's very fun to read. And it's a whole new take on the Latter-day Saint movement. I've never seen a book like this before. Again, it's called 50 Relics of the Restoration. It's published by Cedar Fort. And Casey, can you just tell us a little about yourself and like where you teach? Where did you uh, earn your PhD? Yeah, um, I I teach at BYU. BYU has been my home for 20 years. That's where I got my PhD also. So I'm a little inbred. But um, if you're studying Latter-day Saint history, uh, BYU is kind of the best place to be. You're right by where most of the sources are and you've got all the source experts around you. And so... I just decided to to do my PhD there, and uh, and that's what I teach primarily. So I, I I teach a couple thousand kids at BYU every semester, and love what I do, and um, love the chance that BYU gives me to affiliate with um, great people like you. Oh, thanks, Casey. Same here. Man, a thousand a thousand students. Did you say thousands of students or a thousand students a year? How exactly I, do you do that? I, I am well. I'm a. I'm what they call a teaching track professor. So my job is to just teach students. That's about fourteen hundred per semester. Uh, but the good news is, is that when it comes to publishing, I can kind of publish what I want to publish. There's no pressure on me uh, to uh, to published in this journal or that journal. So I honestly wrote this book because I wanted a book like this. I wasn't worried about any particular academic community. I just had been working with all these different uh, branches of the restoration and, uh, and wanted something that kind of would appeal to all of them. So, yeah, that's kind of the feel I got from your book. Um, it's geared towards, I could see it's kind of geared towards uh, faithful, believing uh, Latter-day Saints, but it doesn't necessarily have to be to them as well. And I appreciated that. it was it, You struck a good balance, in my opinion. Well, this book was really a big attempt to kind of uh, bring some recent research uh, that's pretty cutting edge to a more general audience. And so... We figured it's a bathroom book, you know, if you look through <laughs> it, uh, each chapter is probably about, you know, uh, three or four pages long. It's centered around an object and basically tells you the story of the book. So I think our idea was that you could, you know, go into the bathroom, read a chapter, learn something new, and then come back the next day. So we wanted kind of these bite-sized chunks. And it also gave us uh, an excuse to explore a wide range of ideas and populations and events that have happened uh, in the history of Mormonism. That's great. Yeah, and I, you co you co-authored a book with Mary Jane Woodger. So, mm -hmm. just kind of start. How did you how did you both like come up with this idea for the book? Like, how did you come together to say let's write this? Well, there's a there's a long standing kind of tradition in historical books that there's this genre called a history of something in a hundred objects. It started out with the British museum um, about 20 years ago, they wrote a book called a history of the world in a hundred objects. 
And they started with everything from a cuneiform tablet from, from ancient um, Mesopotamia to like a modern credit card. <laughs> and they took each one to kind of explain, well, here's how it was used. Here's what it teaches you. And it's a great genre that kind of allows you to go into these offbeat places uh, that explore main, more than just kind of the main historical story, but sort of different aspects of how people live at different times and places. So there's been a history of America in 100 Objects that an author from the Smithsonian wrote. There's been a history of World War I in 100 Objects. And we wanted a history of uh, Mormonism in 100 Objects. So we started out with 100. Our publisher narrowed it down to 50. <laughs> <laughs> We wanted a big glossy book with big color photographs and that's expensive. And so they said, well, let's, let's take 50 out for a test drive, but we've got 50 more ready to go. So if you buy the book, um, there's a good chance you'll get to see the next 50, which are even more kind of strange and offbeat. It's this weird cabinet of curiosities (laughs) when it comes to the history of the church. Oh, that's great. Yeah, the pictures in the book are beautiful. They're very, very clear and just really nice. And it even says never before published photos. So there's a lot in there. There's some stuff in here that, yeah, has never before been published. Um, We took photographers with us to the Church History Museum owned by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Salt Lake City. And they gave us access to some stuff that hasn't been on display for decades. Uh, We took photographers to the Community of Christ Temple in Independence that they have a really rich collection and they have some stuff that's never been photographed. And then we worked with private collectors uh, to photograph their collections as well. And um, found a lot of things that, like I said, uh, people haven't seen before uh, that would be really, really unique um, and, and tell kind of a, a different version of the story than maybe they're used to. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, I can't wait to ask you about that. But before we get into it, can you just explain to the audience, like, what in your definition is a relic? And you talk about material history in your book. Like, what is what is a relic? What is material history? Well, um, a relic is anything that kind of has, it's an object that has some sort of sacred association with it. So, and sometimes in Catholicism, relics are literal body parts, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) here is um, St. Jerome's finger bone or something like that. Uh, but we, we weren't going for anything that had like healing powers. Uh, we just wanted things that um, were concrete, that were real. Um, our faith uh, is a very young faith. It's less than 200 years old. And early on in Christianity, there was this impulse of young Christians to like find pieces of the cross or the shroud that Jesus was born. Like the shroud of Turin is an object of material history. But it doesn't have to be anything as grand as that. It could be a quilt that gets passed from uh, generation to generation. Or um, I have my grandpa's medals from World War II. That's material history. Uh, A few years ago, I I toured a battlefield in the South Pacific on Tarawa, and I found a 50 caliber shell uh, there that looked like it had misfired and exploded uh, during the battle. I picked it up. That's material history. That is you touching something uh, that is affiliated with historical events. And so it can be something as grand as the Shroud of Turin, like I said, or something as mundane as, hey, my grandpa gave me uh, this cane that that he used. It it can be something that's really, really personal or something that is really, really uh, big that tells the story of a lot of different people. And we thought that, like we said, it was a way to um, access parts of history 
uh, that people sometimes don't think about. Because we're always talking about like George Washington went here and did this, but we don't ever think about well, what was it like to cook a meal back then? Or uh, what was it like to um, try to keep warm in the middle of the night? Or what was it like to, um, you know, travel from place to place? And we tried to pick objects that highlighted that part of, of living. So not just the grand stuff, but sometimes the mundane day-to-day stuff. What's it like to play sports uh, back in the 19th century? And what kind of recreation did they have? And we tried to pick objects like that, that that highlighted some of these different angles of living. We also tried to pick objects that highlighted women and minorities and uh, international stories too. And we think we wound up with a pretty healthy mix. Yeah, I'd say so. So then how did you get interested with relics material history, especially within the Latter-day Saint movement? Like, So you told us about like how you kind of had the idea of like, you know, from the British Museum or the Smithsonian where they have these books, but like what kind of just piqued your interest about material history within the movement that you grew up in and what you teach about? Well, I've always been interested in it, um, but part of what got me thinking was I made a visit to the Community of Christ Temple when I was a brand new faculty member at BYU, and they brought out several things. They brought out Joseph Smith's um, translation of the Bible, the Bible that Joseph Smith used when he was studying. Uh, They also brought out the translation manuscripts. They brought out uh, an apron that belonged to Emma Smith. They brought out a Masonic uh, apron that belonged to Joseph Smith when he participated in Masonic ceremonies. And that started me thinking that we're such a young religion. There's There's got to be all kinds of things all over the place where for religions less than two centuries old, people hang on to this stuff and they pass it on. But one of the things that we found out was difficult too was that um, provenance is really a challenge. <laughs> um, so there were a couple really great objects for the book uh, that we we started doing checking into, and we realized that they just didn't pass muster; that they weren't genuine. Um, oh, that's wow. a difficulty too when it comes to material history. Is a lot of people will say, "Hey, I have Napoleon's hat," uh, but once you start checking around, you realize it's not Napoleon's hat. <laughs> and we ran into a couple things like that. Interesting. Well, so then, like, just before we get into all that, because I and I want to pick your brain about all this, but like, why? why is understanding relics important? So, I mean, you were talking about how it's really interesting to kind of think about like, what was it like to get warm back in the day? Or, you know, what was it like to, what was it like to be there? So is that part of the reason why relics are important or or material history is important or is there more to it? Well, part of it is the reality. Um, If if a person, you know, let's say an early Christian touches a part of the cross, they're saying to themselves, this is real. This is the wood that Jesus was fastened to. Um, or a person, you know, feels uh, the medals that their grandpa got from World War II. It no longer becomes a story. It becomes something that's tangible and that's real. And there's so much fantastic history linked with the restoration movement and so many different people that were involved in it. And from the sense, it seems like the restoration movement has always had this sense that something big was happening. And so they hung on to things. Like an example would be uh, one of the objects in the book is a handkerchief that Joseph Smith had. Um, Joseph Smith was healing people. They're, they're on the banks of the Mississippi River, and there's this outbreak of, of ague or malaria. And Joseph Smith goes around healing people, and at the end of the day, he's just exhausted. And someone runs up and tells him there's these two 
twins on the other side of the Mississippi River that need to be healed. Joseph Smith can't go, so he hands the handkerchief to Wilford Woodruff, who's right there. Uh, Woodruff takes the handkerchief and goes over, and Joseph instructs him, basically, place this handkerchief on their heads and they'll be healed. And he does, and the twins are healed. And so he hangs onto that handkerchief for the rest of his life. Like, literally, when one of his daughters gets sick, and this is decades later, he gives her a, a, a blessing to heal her, and then he puts the handkerchief on her as if it has this kind of sacred power that can be transferred. So uh, objects have a way of taking what what is kind of um, ethereal, what's, what's a story, and saying, no, this really happened. My grandpa fought in the war because here's his medals. Um, or Joseph Smith really did heal somebody. Here's the Here's the handkerchief that was used on that occasion. And it has a way of kind of bringing home what can be sort of more mythical in our mind and bringing it down to earth. I see. Interesting. So then what do you think this says about, like, uh, I guess you could say us as people in general, or even with people within the Latter-day Saint movement, how does this affect them, the present, the fact that these things still exist and that these things are in archives and museums or people's homes, that people still keep these? Like, what does this say about us now that we, do do we want to have a connection to the past? Do we want to have this connection to these miraculous events that we weren't there for? I I think so. I mean, everybody longs to know, is it a true story? You know, are the stories of Jesus Christ, are the stories of Joseph Smith real or are they exaggerated? And sometimes reading about um, Joseph healing someone is is good and it and it nourishes your faith, but then to see an actual object associated with it, um, this is tangible stuff uh, that you can feel. And I mean, there's this idea that we're just connected uh, to history by being able to touch something. <laughs> uh, there's this weird scene in Star Trek: First Contact. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. <laughs> uh, maybe this is a weird analogy to bring up, but where Picard and Data see this rocket ship, the Phoenix that's historic to them. And Picard puts his hand on it and he just tells him, I just want to be a part of history. I want to feel something and get this feeling that now I'm a part of the narrative too. Uh, That happens a lot uh, among people of faith, especially Latter-day Saints, uh, because our history is so new. And there's this sense that, um, you know, you're not that far removed uh, from it, that, you know, your grandma or grandpa could have known someone whose grandma or grandpa lived at the time that Joseph Smith was publishing the Book of Mormon uh, or building the Nauvoo Temple. And we, we long for that kind of ancestral connection. Uh, since we can't always have it with our ancestors, sometimes visiting someone's grave or going to someone's home or um, touching an object that they're associated with is a powerful way of connecting us to them. I just finished reading a book on Henry David Thoreau, and I am desperate to go to Concord and visit Walden Pond. You know, I want to walk where he walked so that I can experience the same thing as him. An object gives you that same sort of thing. Like I'm touching something that participated in historic events that a historic person touched makes it real for us. Okay. That makes sense. And I find it interesting that you even use the word relic, like relics of the restoration, and you had compared it to Catholicism that they have relics. But you know, what's interesting with the Latter-day Saint movement and the uh, and the uh, Catholicism or Catholic, the Catholic movement is that both movements are intertwined with history, like their faith and theology and their history are woven together. So I just found that interesting that you even used the word relics and talked about Catholicism, because there are a lot of similarities between that, aren't there? I'm kind of getting that feel as you're talking. 
Yeah, we were we were cautious somewhat about using the word relics, actually. That's why we started out with objects, because sometimes relics become reliquaries, which are, you know, objects that are supposed to have supernatural power. We weren't suggesting anything in this book uh, has supernatural power, though some things were used in supernatural events. Um, for instance, one of the objects is the, a seer stone that Joseph Smith may have used during the translation process of the Book of Mormon. Now, we haven't fired that thing up to see what it can do. <laughs> Uh, but the idea that it's associated with something we consider to be miraculous, like the translation of the Book of Mormon, is just neat. It gives a kind of concreteness to uh, a miracle or, or, or an event that we see as a miracle. Okay, interesting. So now that now that we've kind of covered all that, and I just want to dive into it, let's talk about some of the relics that are in the book or the objects. So what are your favorites that are in the book? Well, um, that's kind of like asking me which of my kids I love the most, Daniel. um, There's a couple that I'm really, really proud are in here and that we got a publisher to put in here. Uh, One of the chief ones is a medal that belonged to a man named Greenflake. Um, In in Utah, in Mormonism, there's this, we have, I mean, the 4th of July, and then in Utah, there's the 24th of July. The 24th of July is when you celebrate Brigham Young and the Vanguard Company entering into the Salt Lake Valley and founding their colony, which eventually grows to become Utah, and Utah becomes the the home corridor of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Well, in a certain sense, we whitewashed our history. (laughs) We always imagined like Brigham Young striding over the top of the hill and saying this is the right place. This medal that we included in the book belonged to a man named Green Flake. Uh, Green Flake actually arrived in the valley before Brigham Young did. Brigham Young was really sick uh, during the last stage of the uh, pioneer trek. And he came down with Rocky mountain fever and literally rode into the Valley in the back of a wagon so that he could lay down green. On the other hand, made it into the Valley three days before Brigham Young. And here's the reason why we wanted to include this so badly. Uh, Green was black green flake. Sorry. I hope I'm not mixing up with names here, (laughs) but green flake was uh, an African American slave owned by a member of the Vanguard company. Wow. Uh, there's a feeling within um, within our faith that you know everybody was white early on, and we avoided all the racial issues uh, that have existed in the United States. But this guy's story is front and center. I mean, he's a member of the Vanguard Company. He's one of three African Americans that were part of the Vanguard Company that came to Utah, and he is is a Latter Day Saint. But just tracing his history is complex. Uh, like uh, Green was owned by a family called the Flakes. And according to uh, their own history, when missionaries approached them, they lived in Mississippi, uh, they converted to the gospel, and then they offered to free their slaves, but Green was only 16, and he didn't have any other place to go. So he stayed with the flakes, and at that point, it becomes somewhat nebulous as to whether or not he's a slave or a free person. For instance, um, you could pay tithing back then, your offering to the church could be more than just money you could lay, you could put forth labor. And the flakes counted Green's work on the Nauvoo Temple as their tithing, which suggests they considered him property. Uh, Green goes on the Vanguard trip along with Isaac Flake, but the question is, does he go as a slave or does he go as a, a person who generally wanted to go? He is a convert to the church and he believes in the cause that Brigham Young's leading, but why is he there? And then when they get to the valley, the Greens move on to Southern California to set up a colony down there, and Green doesn't go with them, which again suggests that he's free. There's all this evidence back and forth that he's a slave and other evidence that he's free, and maybe they just never really had the talk 
about what his relationship was going to be. Well, while the Flake family is in San Bernardino, California, Isaac Flake, the patriarch of the family, dies. And Isaac's wife sends for Green. Like, I need you to send down. The language she uses is my Negro, which suggests Green is still a slave. And at that point, Brigham Young intervenes and says, Green is living here. He has his own family. He has his own wife and kids. I'm sorry, I can't just send him. He's a free person. This is all pre-Civil War, but it shows how Latter-day Saints didn't avoid the main controversies that existed uh, back then. Here's Green Flake, uh, who is black, a member of the church, uh, a slave, and then a former slave, living out these controversies that we're still reenacting and dealing with in American history. So we're really proud that one got put in the book. (laughs) Yeah, I (laughs) can see why. A lot about black Latter-day Saints, and they're an important part of our faith community. Wow. So what else? I mean, that's, that's a great one, but there, are there any others that you really liked or that Mary liked? Um, Mary Jane was really crazy about the temple swimsuit, um, which you don't often hear the words temple and swimsuit um, <laughs> in, in, in a sentence, but this was one of those objects that nobody's ever, I mean, we, we had to find the family, track it down. They gave it to us. We literally found like a female mannequin to put it on and then photographed it. Uh, in my in-laws basement during Thanksgiving, because my brother-in-law is an object photographer. He did a lot of the work on the book, oh. uh, but uh, this, the temple swimsuit was designed by a woman named Rosemarie Reed, who was a Latter-day Saint, an active Latter-day Saint. And for a time was the top swimsuit designer in the world. Uh, she designed swimsuits for Marilyn Monroe and Greta Garbo uh, and all these Hollywood starlets, basically. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, and this swimsuit she designed specifically to raise funds for the Los Angeles temple. So um, the church is building a temple in downtown Los Angeles in the 1950s. This is an important part of us moving from becoming just a Western Utah religion to moving out into different places around the world. And she's a, she agrees to basically create this swimsuit and give the proceeds to the temple. So the swimsuit has this beautiful um, set of ornate kind of sequins and beads on it that the Relief Society sisters um, sewed into the swimsuit specifically. Uh, the swimsuit was so popular, it was actually stolen. <laughs> um, and and there was a big scandal, like this beauty queen stole it, didn't tell anybody, and they had to track her down, and it was like a CSI Los Angeles kind of thing, <laughs> um, where they, they find her and they find her out. And it, like I said, this swimsuit was was popular, but Rosemary Reed kind of cycles out of the national consciousness in the 1960s because when the bikini became popular, she refused to design bikinis. She thought they were inelegant and immodest. But we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, a woman in, in a 20th century context that has this huge impact culturally. Like, I mean, my wife's favorite mi- movie from the 50s is Gidget, and Gidget was wearing Rosemary Reed swimsuits. We thought this would be a great way to kind of highlight, hey, swimsuits have been influenced by Latter-day Saint uh, culture. And in turn, Latter-day Saint culture was influenced by swimsuits. It helped raise the funds so that we could have this sacred center in the middle of Los Angeles. Wow. Yeah, definitely not something you would expect. (laughs) Yeah, a little kind of came out of nowhere. Wow. Okay, Casey, one more. Give me one more that or tell the audience that you like, because there's a lot of good stuff in here. Okay. Well, one of the other ones that I really like, um, and this one might be kind of timely, is an object we know is fake. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We know that it's not real, but the events surrounding it have made it historic. And that is a Mark Hoffman forgery. Um, recently Netflix, um, 
published this docu-series called The Mormon Murders. And uh, some of your listeners may have watched it, but the basic story is, is that our church, like you mentioned, is deeply dependent on its history. Our history and our theology overlap to a great degree. And uh, because our church is so young, we, we still find manuscripts and, uh, and, and things that relate to our history all the time. In the 1980s, there was this document collector named Mark Hoffman who just went on like a hot streak. Like every other month, he was finding some sort of incredible historical document that was earth-shaking to our faith. And not just our faith, he found a number of historical documents relating to the history of the United States and other things that were just astounding that this guy was that good. Well, uh, to make a long story short, um, in in the mid-1980s, bombs started going off in Salt Lake. And a document collector, a historical collector named Stephen Christensen was killed when a bomb was dropped off his office and when he opened it, it exploded. And then two days later, um, another bomb goes off uh, in a suburb of Salt Lake City, Holiday, uh, that kills this woman who opens her uh, mailbox. And because these documents are all linked to the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, everybody starts thinking, oh my gosh, is someone trying to off people that are calling into question Latter-day Saint history? Well, uh, a short while after, a bomb goes off in the car of Mark Hoffman, this document collector that's been finding all this amazing stuff. And at first, they think someone's trying to assassinate him. And then as they investigate more and more, they start to find out that the bomb may have gone off accidentally and that he was the person dropping the bombs. They do more investigations and they find out that he's been forging these documents, but using this kind of ingenious process uh, to, to make them appear genuine. One of the documents that he found, or found supposedly, was uh, a blessing that Joseph Smith had given to his son, Joseph Smith III. One of the biggest controversies between uh, my church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and Community of Christ, which is the, the next biggest numerically uh, church linked to Joseph Smith, is that they believe, or they did believe, that Joseph Smith's son, Joseph III, was supposed to succeed him when he died. And this blessing said exactly that. It was a blessing that basically declared that Joseph III was supposed to be Joseph Smith's successor. So it had huge implications. Uh, the church purchased it. One of our general authorities, Gordon B. Hinckley, gave a talk in general conference about this specific manuscript, this blessing. Uh, and then when Hoffman was found out to be a forger, it all turned out to be a fake. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, so the, uh, the manuscript is actually still in possession of Community of Christ, this little blessing. They let us photograph it. And we put it in the book kind of as a warning to say, hey, before somebody says, you know, this is a letter that, um, that General Patton wrote, or this is a letter that Abraham Lincoln wrote, do your homework and make sure that it's correct. Because Hoffman fooled the FBI. He fooled a ton of professional historians. Uh, and it's really a fascinating story about how sometimes a fake historical object becomes a real historical object. I mean, as a blessing from Joseph Smith to Joseph Smith III, it's not worth anything. But as a, a, a way of capturing the anxiety that existed in the early 1980s surrounding Mormon history, it's an incredibly valuable object. And we're really, really glad that it's in the book. Yeah, absolutely. Well, then that leads me to my next question. So is there tension or controversy surrounding any of the objects or relics that you included in this book? Or, you know, I'm sure some, even some of the ones you were just telling me, I'm sure people would be surprised to see that in there. But has have you heard of anything where someone said, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is in here? 
um, yeah, yeah. I mean, some of the stuff we put in the book we knew would be controversial. And uh, we put it in there as a way of just dealing with it head on. Uh, we felt like it would be healthy if we put an object in, like, say, the brown seer sum um, and, and said, here's what we know and here's what we don't know as a way of kind of engaging uh, with the conversation. The Brown Seer Stone, for instance, is really controversial because uh, the narrative that, that Joseph Smith shared about translation is that he used uh, uh, instruments that came from an ancient civilization called the, um, the Nephite interpreters. Um, Joseph Smith used those, and there's accounts of him using those during the translation process of the Book of Mormon, which Latter-day Saints consider to be a miracle. Uh, This 531-page book is translated in an incredibly short period of time. It's very complex. And Joseph Smith is is saying this is an ancient historical record that proves that there was a Christian civilization in the Americas that Jesus Christ visited. I mean, that's a game changer, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the people that participated in the translation process also talked about Joseph Smith uh, using a seer stone uh, that wasn't one of the Nephite interpreters. Um, but that he also used in the translation process and that he may have had in his possession as early as um, 1822 or so. Um, Joseph Smith doesn't mention the seer stone, but people like Martin Harris and Emma Smith and David Whitmer mention the seer stone. And even though we don't have the Nephite interpreters currently in our possession, those were taken back by the angel that gave Joseph Smith the record. We do have the brown seer stone in our possession. And uh, the Seer Stone photographs of it were published for the first time in 2015 as part of the Joseph Smith Papers Project that the church has been engaged in. And so this is the first time, I think, outside of the Joseph Smith Papers Project that they've allowed a book uh, to carry a photograph of the Seer Stone. We didn't get to see the Seer Stone itself. They just gave us a photograph and then gave us permission uh, to talk about it. But we thought it was pretty cool to kind of say, hey, here is an object linked with this miraculous event, the translation of the Book of Mormon that has a clear providence. I mean, the seer stone that we're looking at, we can't with 100% surety say is the real deal, but it has a pretty clear uh, pretty clear providence from Joseph Smith down to the institutional possession of the church that it's in right now. Okay. Fascinating stuff. So Casey, how, I, you, so you're talking about all these great relics that you have in the book. How did you and Mary, A, decide what to put in there or what to look for? And then I'm sure you probably had more. You said you had more than 50. You had about 100. But I mean, even that seems kind of like a low number. How did you whittle down to kind of figure out like, okay, what are we going to put in the book? What are we going to leave out? Well, the 100 are ones that we've actually written chapters about. Um, We actually started out with, I think, around 500 to 600 objects. Wow. And narrowed it down from there to the 100. Uh, And it was really, really difficult. Uh, We wanted, uh, and part of it was the publisher helped us. Like Cedar Ford basically took our 100 chapters and then picked out the 50 that they wanted to put into this volume with the assumption that we'll hopefully do a volume two and get the other 50 in there um, as well. Uh, but we, we, we sat down with, uh, we, we had in our mind, the classics that we wanted to put in there. Like we really wanted Joseph Smith's death mask. Uh, we wanted objects linked to Joseph Smith's martyrdom. Uh, we wanted objects linked to the international history of the church. So we have a, a radio that an African member of the church first heard that, uh, all worthy men could hold the priesthood on. And then we went to some of these repositories and said, Hey, give us your greatest hits. So we went to the church history museum. And, uh, and said, what are some things that, that nobody has heard about uh, that you might be willing to share with us? And they were just a cornucopia. They gave us 
so much good stuff uh, that we absolutely loved uh, putting in the book. Um, and then we went to Community of Christ and said, what do you guys have? And then we tracked down individual collectors and it kind of snowballed over time. Like there's a couple of collectors that are competitive with each other. <laughs> and they were basically saying, well, if you're going to photograph his collection, I've got better stuff than he does. You need to come to my store. And it turned into a, you know, let's a game of one upmanship, but there were always some objects like an 1830 edition of the book of Mormon that we knew we were going to put in the book. Uh, it was just a question of whose 1830 edition were we going to put in? We settled on the one that belonged to Lucy Mack Smith, Joseph Smith's mother, because She's a she's a woman. She hasn't gotten as much credit as she probably deserves uh, for the role she played in the early restoration. And we wanted the perspective of, of someone who was there on the ground while the miraculous events surrounding the Book of Mormon were taking place, but also was an astute historian. And she writes this really great history of Joseph Smith. It's about the best history of his early years that you can find. And so we thought, well, let's let's find her copy. And Community of Christ had it in their possession. She wrote her name uh, in it. And was and we took a good photograph of it, and we used it mostly as an excuse to talk about her and her experiences with the Book of Mormon. Because, for instance, nobody has seen the Nephite interpreters except Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, but Lucy Mack Smith held the Nephite interpreters. Um, early on, when Joseph Smith retrieved the gold plates that the Book of Mormon was recorded on from the Hill Cumorah, he doesn't bring it home. He hides it in the woods. And his mother basically comes up to him and says, I don't know how you're not losing your mind not knowing where those plates are at all moment. According to her, Joseph Smith reached into his pocket and says, don't worry, mother, I have a key. He pulls out this object that's encased in a, a silk handkerchief and he hands it to her and she feels the Nephite interpreters through this silk handkerchief. And so uh, a, a woman who had participated in translation had even held the interpreters, we thought was a great candidate to talk about the Book of Mormon and to use it as an excuse to share her story a little bit more. Oh, wow. So what have your responses been when from people are, that are seeing all this great stuff in the book? Or have, you, have people told you about, you know, after they read the book, what they think of it? Uh, we've had a ton of people come forth <laughs> and say, hey, I have this thing. Or you ought to come down and look at this. And a lot of people are assuming that because I know the history of these objects, I know how much their stuff is worth. <laughs> so we've had a friend contact me and say, hey, I have a really old copy of the Book of Mormon do you want to come tell me how much it's worth? And I'm like, I have no idea how much it's worth. Um, <laughs> I can tell you, I can tell you it's history, but I never went to any of these collectors and, and priced them out. Uh, it is interesting that one object we worked with early on in the book, which was the printer's manuscript of the book of Mormon. Uh, we actually did find out how much it was worth. Um, I went to independence and did kind of a preliminary set of photographs to prove to our publisher, this was feasible. And I took photographs. I was alone in a room with the printer's manuscript of the Book of Mormon, among other objects, uh, for about three hours. And about three months after that experience, the printer's manuscript sold for $35 million. <laughs> <laughs> it was wow. the second most expensive uh, document acquisition in history after an object linked to Leonardo, um, uh, Leonardo da Vinci. And uh, I, I remember like thinking I was alone with that for three hours. <laughs> like, what if I left it in my jacket and run out the door? Um, and, and you can't worry about things like that. Like the things that we handled and that our photographers got to work with are, well, I don't want to put a price on them because they're priceless in any given mind. But, but just that one object that we'd worked with uh, selling for $35 million illustrates kind of how precious this is. Uh, to these communities that are associated with them. Wow. 
That's awesome, Casey. Again, the, the name of this wonderful book is called 50 Relics of the Restoration. It was uh, published by uh, Cedar Fort, written by Casey Paul Griffiths and Mary Jane Woodger. Again, a great book. Definitely should check it out. Um, and Casey, uh, is there anything else you want to tell about your book? Um, just that I'm so deeply appreciative to the historians that helped us. Um, and the archivist, Rachel Killebrew, a community of Christ, uh, Alan Morrill, um, Carrie Snow. Uh, some of the objects would not be in this book if it wasn't for them. For instance, Rachel Killebrew, who works at Community of Christ and is absolutely wonderful, uh, brought out this portrait of Emma Smith. Uh, most people uh, that are familiar with Emma Smith are familiar with kind of an oil painting of her. Um, this was a photograph that was taken after uh, Joseph Smith was killed. It was taken five months after Joseph Smith was killed in 1844. And when Joseph was um, when Joseph was killed, Emma was pregnant with their last child, David Hiram. Uh, it shows Emma Smith. It shows her holding David Hiram. I don't think it's been very, very uh, known among most people. And we got the actual daguerreotype and took a really nice high-res photo of it. It captures kind of the grief and mourning and sorrow that Emma felt. Uh, and it's just beautiful. And that's just one of a hundred other objects that people were incredibly generous with us and, and pointed us to words that we might not have known about or been able to tell the story about. Wow. That's great, Casey. So what are you working on now and what can we expect to learn from you in the future? <laughs> uh, well, we're hoping second volume of uh, 50 Relics. Um, I also have a biography that's coming out this summer on a guy named Joseph F. Merrill, who not a lot of people have heard of, but was really, really important in the uh, in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, Merrill was an apostle that lived in the late 19th and early 20th century, and he really changed a lot of things uh, about the way Latter-day Saints do education. But beyond that, it's just a great story about uh, a person of faith and a person of science. Merrill was an apostle in the church, but he was also a, a physicist that worked at the University of Utah. And the big spine of the book kind of became how you reconcile science and faith and how Merrill did that. Uh, that guy was, with him being dead, you know, almost a century, <laughs> a really important mentor to me as I was going through graduate school to learn kind of how to reconcile uh, secular empirical learning with with my faith. And so I'm really proud of that too. And that's going to be coming out in the next couple of months. Oh, that's great. We'll definitely look forward to seeing that. Again, Casey's book is, and Mary Jane Woodger's book is called 50 Relics of the Restoration. Casey, thanks so much for being on. Really appreciate it. And thanks so much for talking about your wonderful book. Thank you, Daniel. It's always good to hear your voice and, um, and have a chance to visit with you. All right. Thanks. Take care. <laughs>